Our sermon today comes from Psalm 17. But as we go there, as we did last week, it's helpful to remember that behind and beneath the Psalms, there is a worldview that flows from knowing the Lord himself, knowing what he's like and what he does. Uh, let's look at that worldview again using these questions and answers developed by Jay Sklar from Covenant Seminary. I'll read the question if you'll read the answer. Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does he do? He blesses and protects those who embrace his covenant from the heart while demonstrating his justice against those who rebel against him. When does he do these things? Often in the here and now, and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace his covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for his justice. I really commend these questions to you. Internalizing these things, uh, they help change the way that you and I look at the world too. But we see this worldview in Psalm 17 as David finds himself suffering at the hands of someone or some ones who do not love the Lord or his ways or his people. So let's pray as we listen to David so that we too might know how to respond well in suffering. Would you pray with me? Living word of God, come now and bring forth your message for our lives in that which is about to be read and preached. May your word bless, heal, and restore us, for we are, as Isaiah said, a needy people. Your word is the only light to our path, the only light for our feet. And in this we rejoice through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. 
As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pain often produces prayer, or at least it should. And this psalm is a prayer poured out from a heart in pain. David is being attacked. Attacked by a person, even persons, who are out to get him, whose heart is set on violence. In verse 12, the enemy is singular, a man who is like a lion eager to tear. But you can see in verse 11 that there's more than one out for his blood. He says, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. Now, we aren't told the precise circumstances of David's situation, but if you look at verse 9, where David speaks of being surrounded by deadly enemies, we know that David is in mortal danger. And he's not alone. He's not by himself. In verse 11, he says, They have now surrounded our, plural, our steps. And so David and a group of his friends are surrounded by an enemy who has men on his side too. Now from the books of First and Second Samuel, you'll know that there were more than a couple of times when David was surrounded by enemies. And while we can't say for sure which of those times sparked this prayer, it sounds like the time when David was being pursued by Saul in, when he was on the run in the wilderness. Because at, <clears throat> because at that time, David had done nothing wrong, which actually is a very important part of this psalm. And in fact, David had done everything right, and yet Saul was out to kill David. Already, Saul had tried to pin David to a wall with a spear twice. But even when he was on the run, hunted and maligned, David's confidence and faith in the Lord did not waver. On the contrary, his faith fueled this prayer as he cried out to the Lord for help. Now, what about you? Maybe you have never been a hunted man, but have you ever been attacked unjustly at work? Did someone hate you because you tried to do what was right instead of what was easy? Or maybe you've never had someone try to pin you to a wall with a spear, but have women whispered things about you that just weren't true? Maybe we haven't spent years living in caves like David did, but, but God's people throughout the ages know what it means to be treated unjustly, both as an individual and as a whole. Sometimes it looked like being fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum for confessing Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. And sometimes it looks like being an outcast because your beliefs don't match the spirit of the age. But at this point, it is helpful to remember that the family of the serpent from Genesis 3, the family of the serpent and the family of faith have been at enmity with each other ever since our first parents broke covenant with the Lord. Ever since Cain hated and murdered his brother Abel, 
there have always been those whose anger against God finds expression in the mistreatment of his people. But when it happens to you, when you suffer injustice for nothing that you've done, then what are you supposed to do? We need to follow David's lead here in Psalm 17 because David is helpless against his enemy. But he prays because he knows the Lord is not helpless. And through this prayer, he encourages us to pray for ourselves, believing that we really can cast all of our anxieties on the Lord because he cares for us. As we consider this passage, we're going to answer two questions to help us pray as God's people when we are wronged for no reason. The first question is, first, what do we pray? What do we pray? And second, what will God do? What can we expect Him to do? So first, when we suffer injustice, what do we pray? Well, in verse 1, we hear the first part of our prayer. First, We pray for the Lord to hear. Just like a hurt child calls out for mom or dad, we need to be heard heard by the only one who can actually help us. He is the only one with the power to rescue us, and so we go to Him, asking for Him to hear our needs. Like a widow pleading with a judge to give her justice against the people who are trying to take advantage of her. We need God to vindicate us. We need God to protect us. And so we cry out for Him to hear us. And don't we have good reason to expect, like David does in verse 6, don't we have good reason to expect that the Lord will hear us? Hasn't God always heard the groanings of His people and responded? Not always in the ways that they expect Him to respond, but He responds. Didn't He hear Israel groan in Egypt? Didn't He hear Hannah as she cried out to the Lord in her childless distress? Jesus heard His disciples when they cried on the night when the storm was big and their boat was small. And He will hear you when you call to Him. At this point, though, I want us to talk a little bit about that expectation. Why do we expect the Lord to hear us? We need to answer that because maybe you notice something in this passage. Maybe you notice the way that David appeals to his own righteousness when he calls out for God to hear him. He, he pleads for God to hear his just cause. In verse 1, literally, he says, hear righteousness. He says his own lips are free from deceit and that the Lord will find nothing in him that fails the test. In verses 4 and 5, he says, By the word of your lips, he's been listening to God. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My feet have held fast to your paths, Lord. My feet have not slipped. Does David expect God to hear him because David is righteous? Actually, yes, he does. He does expect God to answer because of David's own righteousness. 
But that doesn't mean what you might think that it means. We often equate righteousness or a right standing in the presence of God, we often equate that with sinless perfection. But God's people have never been sinless. Not since our first parents rebelled against the Lord in the garden. And as one who knows his own heart, David knows that he is a sinful man. As he says elsewhere in Psalm 38, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. In many places, David confesses his sinfulness both generally and specifically Psalm 51 is a perfect example of David's self-knowledge of his need for mercy. And so how are we supposed to understand David appealing for the Lord to hear because of David's own righteousness? Well, we need to look beneath the words to understand what he means. I appreciate the, one, the way one writer puts it. He says, David is not, of course, claiming sinlessness in general, but that in this particular situation, he has maintained righteousness. And we see that in the way that the narrative of David and Saul plays out. David comes to God with a clear conscience in this matter. In other words, David has searched his heart. He's evaluated his words. He has carefully considered whether or not his actions accord with the ways of the Lord when it comes to this situation, whatever it was. And he can honestly say that he's in the right. He's righteous in that he has not wronged this person who is coming after him. But we can also say that his righteousness runs deeper. It's not just about his behavior. As another writer says, he knows that he is not merely, not merely righteous in his relation to man, but also in his relation to God. And whenever a person in Scripture appeals to their own righteousness in the sight of God, what is intended is the, a righteousness of life which has its ground, its foundation, in the righteousness of faith. Ever since Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, just like in our assurance of pardon earlier, ever since then, God's people have recognized that faith in the Lord is the only basis for being viewed with favor in God's sight. And that means then that any righteousness that bends God's ear is a gift of pure grace. It's true, as one commentator says, that although righteousness in the Old Testament seems to focus on behavior, and righteousness in the New Testament seems to focus on what is inside, what is declared of us by the Lord, even so, he says, the righteousness of life in the Old Testament and that of the new one have the same basis, one and the same basis, which is the grace of God, the Redeemer, toward sinful man who in himself is wanting in righteousness before God. That is why we can say that there is no self-righteousness in David 
and is praying that the righteousness which in him is persecuted and cries for help may be heard. There's no self-righteousness in David here. Because on the one hand, his personal relationship to his enemy, in that relationship, he knows himself to be free from wrong thoughts or actions. And on the other hand, in his personal relationship with God, he is free from self-delusion and hypocrisy. So here and now, for you, these two facets of righteousness, the rightness of behavior and the right standing before God that comes by faith, these two facets force us to examine ourselves. When it comes to behavior, it may be that, like David, you are hated for no good reason. It may be that you are completely innocent and you're still being attacked. But taking our sin seriously means that I must consider the possibility that I am not completely innocent. And so I want you to ask yourself, when you're feeling attacked by someone, am I blameless in this situation? Have I done something or have I failed to do something that contributed to this conflict? Am I really being attacked? Or is this a misunderstanding that I'm partly responsible for? Ask God to examine you, to show you where you might have done wrong. And I would also encourage you to ask a wise brother or sister, some mature believer, ask them to examine you too. You should not be quick to trust your own judgment of yourself. Now, if you realize through that examination that you have done wrong, don't think that God is just going to leave you to yourself. A wise pastor said that we must remember that there are other grounds for prayer than a clear conscience. We can appeal to God with equal certainty on the basis of just being needy, our needy state. We can appeal to Him on, uh, based on our need for divine forgiveness. We can appeal to him simply in the name of Jesus. If you have done wrong, look to God in faith and repent for that wrong and seek to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, keep trusting that God is able to turn even your sin for good, especially as you go and you seek forgiveness from the person against whom you've sinned. But... If, after examining yourself in the light of God's Word and, by, and being examined by fellow believers, if you still, at that point, believe yourself to be innocent in a matter, and if you examine yourself to see if you are the one who clings to the Lord in faith and have that right standing with Him by grace, then you can again return to this prayer as a model for your own prayer. And in the confidence that is in the Lord, in confidence that the Lord hears those who cry to Him in faith, then you can move to pray the second part of this prayer. And we see it in verses 6 through 12. We pray for the Lord to give. We pray for the Lord to give. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, is His plea. 
the wondrous deeds of God, which are the overflow of His loving kindness for His people, are seen again and again and again throughout the story of Scripture. When God told Sarah that she would bear Abraham a son in his old age, she laughed to herself in disbelief. But the Lord said to her, Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Nineteen other times in the Psalms alone, God's wondrous deeds are celebrated, most often recounting how he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt by great signs and by terrible power. The Lord has always shown his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love to his people. And David longs to see that same love on display once again in his own time of need. Don't you need the Lord to give you that too? Ask Him to give you His steadfast love in wondrous ways. And pray too that He would protect you. That's the idea that we see in verse 7, where David says that the Lord is the Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at His right hand. That need for protection is, what's behind, is what is behind David's request for the Lord to keep me, hide me, in verse 8. He prays that prayer for protection because the people who are pursuing Him are not interested in reconciliation. Now that's important. In Romans, Paul instructs believers that if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But even he recognizes that there are times when the people who are against you aren't going to be reasonable. Like the men of verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. Which is to say that there is no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. No evidence of the Spirit's joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness or self-control. On the contrary, they're like the person in verse 12. With their mouths they speak arrogantly, and their intention is to tear you apart like a lion. Now, it's easy for us, it's easy for us to write somebody else off as a villain, as a lost cause. And while it is right for us to pray that the Lord would use His sword, as we see in verse 13, it's right for us to pray that the Lord would use His sword against the wicked. It's also vital to remember that the person who is attacking you is himself a victim of a more powerful, roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour, as Peter says in his letter. Or as Paul writes, in an ultimate sense, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So yes, you do need protection from people when they attack us without cause, but we also need spiritual protection from a spiritual enemy. And so it's necessary to go to God asking Him for both. We need protection from any enemies that surround us. It's true that God knows that you need that. 
He knows that you need his love and protection, but still he calls us to pray and ask for it. Like in Mark 10, 51, Jesus himself knew what that blind man needed. But still he asked, what do you want me to do? He asks you that now. What do you want him to do for you? Ask him to hear your call. Ask him to give you his steadfast love and protection. And third, ask him to rise up. Ask him to rise up. That's David's request in verse 13. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. By your sword. What's the easiest thing for you to do when you're attacked? If you're anything like me, the easiest thing to do is to go on the offensive. To take vengeance for myself, to, to cut my attacker down to size. And so what is striking here is that David himself, a warrior, is not taking up the sword himself. He's asking the Lord to do it. And that is not just talk. You remember the story. When Saul and his men were hunting David and the few people who were with him, David actually had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. But David refused to put his hand against the Lord's anointed. As terrible and as violent as he was, and David forbade his men from harming him either. Even when he had the chance, David did not take vengeance for himself, but instead he waited. He waited on the Lord to do what is right. It's hard for us to follow David here. It's, hard, it's a hard thing when we are wrong to entrust the situation to God, to actually entrust that person to God. It's hard to wait when my reputation or my career or my friendship is at stake. And not taking matters into my own hands actually feels like death. And in a way, it is. But here again, knowing how, how sin distorts our notions of what justice looks like, knowing that demands that we wait on God, because if I seek my own form of justice and I'm wrong, then I may just become the very thing that I hate. A person whose heart is closed to pity. A person who is eager to tear another living being. A person who is following the ways of the violent rather than following the ways of the Lord. Look, I want you to work for justice for others. And I want you to pray for the Lord to rise and do justice against those who hurt you without cause. But as the people of the living God, you are not free to seek vengeance for yourself. Listen to Paul again. He said, as we heard earlier, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, he says, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you and I pray for the Lord to hear and give, when we pray for him to rise in these ways, what we're really doing is we're putting our faith into action. We're expressing our trust that God is the kind of God who answers and he gives and he even fights for his people. But when we pray in these ways, what will God do? That's our second big question, and we hear the answers in verses 14 and 15. What will God do? Well, the first thing to notice here is how the Lord satisfies. He satisfies both the wicked and the one who is the apple of his eye, as we hear in verse 8. He gives each one of them what they really want. He gives them the greatest good that they can imagine, but the distance between their desires is infinite. Look first at verse 14, where David understands the end of those who, whose portion is in this life. It says, the Lord fills their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their inf infants. Look, it might sound strange, that the Lord's answer to David's cry for justice is to give his enemies children and means or wealth. He gives them abundance that they can leave to their children. It might seem strange that the Lord's answer to David's cry for justice is to do that. But there are many places in Scripture where being given exactly what you want is actually a sign of God's judgment and His displeasure. Think about it this way. If all you want in life is children and a comfortable life to leave them with, then it may just be that God gives you exactly what you want and nothing more. Remember, it, this is God's judgment against those who hate Him and His people. Their good portion, the good things that they enjoy, is in this life and confined to this life only. Because they reject the Lord, they will not see Him in the life to come. And if that doesn't sound like judgment to us, then we have not yet understood how satisfying the Lord Himself really is. But David knows it. David knows it. Look, listen to verse 15. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. One writer suggests that in this, we see the innermost nature of the Old Testament faith. To the Old Testament believer, all blessedness, all glory of the future life, which the New Testament then unfolds, it's all contained in the Lord Himself. The Lord is His highest good. And possessing Him, He is raised above heaven and earth, above life and death. 
to be satisfied with God himself resting in him, hiding in him. That is the essence of faith, both then and now. Trusting in him beyond what our eyes can see, we live in the certainty that sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. But the morning that the psalmist, that David envisions when he awakes in verse 15, what he envisions is not merely the morning of his escape from the enemy. Because even if, even when, the enemy does his worst, still David's hope endures, even through death. David's here, David here is anticipating not a good night's sleep, but a resurrection morning when he awakens to see the face of his Savior. He knows that there is coming a day, the dawn of a forever day, when he will see his God face to face. And so his hope is a hope that not even death can quench, because his God is the living God. For you and me, we can expect that God will answer our prayers for love and justice. We can rest confidently like David in the knowledge that God will satisfy everyone with what they want, giving, giving either temporary pleasures in this life to those who reject him, or giving himself forever to those who embrace him. But how do we know how do we know that God will do all of this? Why? Why can we trust God and wait for Him to act? Why is it safe to pray and to live this way? The answer is right in front of you. We know that God will do all of this for His people. Because he has already done it all in Jesus Christ our Lord. The only truly righteous man who ever lived suffered the worst injustice the world has ever seen. And he suffered not for his own sins, but for ours. There was no deceit in his lips, and though he was totally innocent. He was surrounded by his enemies, by those who hated him. But after, after he was crucified without pity, he awoke on that resurrection morning with a beating heart full of love for his people, for us, even though at the time we were still his enemies. But he loved us, and the blood that brought us peace with God was racing through his veins. And instead of taking vengeance on us who deserve it, he shows mercy to us. And he gives us grace so that as we receive him and as we rest in him, we are united to him by his spirit, sharing in his death and sharing in his resurrection life, even now. As another pastor said, a God who suffers pain, injustice, and death for us is a God worthy of our worship. 
in a world of pain and oppression? How could we give our allegiance to someone who is immune to all of that? This is a God who knows what storms are like because he came into the world and he dove straight into the greatest pain and suffering. Because of his self-substitution, we can have life. Our desire is for all to come to know Jesus in this way. Because we know that it's necessary for, uh, that because of sin, it is necessary for all men to die. We must either die with Christ, being united to him by faith. We must either die with Christ or men must die apart from him. And so you and I, we ought to be praying even for our enemies that they might come to know Jesus and become our brothers and sisters in him. But even if they persist in rejecting God, we can trust the Lord to wait and we can wait for him to act because we know that the Lord will deliver us the same way that he delivered Jesus. Which is to say that he may not save us from injustice, but he will save us through it. He will save us and bring us to life just as our Lord passed through death into life. Church, Jesus said that we would be hated by all for his sake, because of his name. He said that in this world, we will have tribulations. But he also said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And here in this meal, he shows us his love wondrously once again, his wondrous love that that secures us, that says that he will keep us until he comes again, because you really are the apple of his eye. He really does hide you in the shadow of his wings. And so as you hear Jesus' voice and you come to him in faith today, believing in him, come to this table. This isn't Trinity's table or this denomination's table. It is the Lord's. This meal is for those who have been baptized into Jesus and have publicly professed their faith in him by joining themselves to his church. Now, if that is not you right now, then the Lord himself says that it would be better for you not to eat and drink this because this is no ordinary meal. As everyone comes forward, you can simply come and pass them by, or you can remain seated. But while you watch us eat and drink, let me encourage you to do this. Ask God to help you see Jesus, who loves to save his enemies. And come and talk with the other elders or me so that we can know him better together. And maybe next time we could even eat together. But for you who hope in Christ, I'd encourage you to come. Come group by group. Come with the people you're comfortable being close with. Come and take the elements from the table and come and eat and drink together. Because our Savior has come and he will keep us until he comes again. Let's pray together as we come to his table. 
Father, we humbly ask you that now, by your Spirit, you would set apart these elements for our good, so that as we eat and drink the body and blood of our Savior by faith, our souls would be strengthened to stand firm until Christ comes. Father, we are a needy people. We need your love, and we need your protection, and we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ our Lord we have both. In him we have a king who is risen and reigning, who is protecting us, and will soon, he has subdued us to himself, and he will soon subdue all of his and our enemies. Father, we live in this hope, and we ask that you would make us the kind of people now who even love our enemies, even as we pray for justice. Lord, help us in the body and blood of Jesus to see what love really looks like. And to see the beauty of laying down your life, laying down your rights for the good of someone else. Father, we pray all this, we ask all this to the praise of your glorious grace. And in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.